A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian Welcome, everyone, and everyone to guide. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode about Reb Shulam Laser, Halberstam of Ratzfert is generously sponsored. Le'ili Nishmas, Reb Moshe Shulam ben Reb Yaakov. The yard site of Reb Moshe Shulam ben Reb Yaakov is on Chaf El. He passed away in Tafshin Nun Aleph, a devoted chassid of Reb Shulam Lazer. He lived in a town right right next to Ratzfurt called Haidinanish. Hope I pronounced that right. He and his family were dedicated chassidim who went very often to the Rebbe Reb Shulam Lazer. For the rest of his life, a day did not pass in which he didn't mention his Rebbe, and this episode should be in his memory. So we had I had an episode way back on the Divrei Chaim of Tzanz, um, the father of Reb Shulam Eliezer, and uh, that was you know very popular, and there was a lot of requests to keep on going about the house of Tzanz and the children of the Divrei Chaim, and there's a lot to talk about. Um, the different branches that came out of Tzanz. So first you might want to check out that episode uh, on the Divrei Chaim. And, um, and uh, hopefully we'll have more. The children, his family was, you know, they had his oldest son, Rabbi Cheskel of Shinov, he had Rabbi Chagarlitz, he had Rabbi Meir Nassen, whose, whose, whose son was the first Baba Varebbe, and uh, other branches that came out of the great uh, house of of uh, of sons, so there's definitely a lot to talk about in that in that respect. Um, you know, of course, you could be in touch with me about sponsorships for uh, episodes like that, or any other sponsorships or lectures on that topic and other topics of related to Jewish history. You could be in touch with me. But now, this time, we'll focus on on the story of one of his younger sons from his uh, third marriage. Uh, Shulam that's how he was known. Um, and he on a, he was eventually uh, killed by the Nazis uh, during the Holocaust in Auschwitz. And I want to open up with um, this story. In his, in his father's Eichel, uh, in, in, the, in the cemetery where his father's buried, there's a memorial plaque at the entrance to the Eichel. Um, where the, several of the, of the Derechaim's children who were killed by the Nazis, who lived a long life and, um, and were killed during the Holocaust, 
they are remembered there. They obviously don't have a grave anywhere. And there's like this dedication, and it hits you kind of like you're going through the Divrei Chaim's Isle, this big, beautiful Isle, and so many thousands of people come and visit all the time. And here at the entrance, there's this memorial, you know, plaque to his sons who are, and, and a son in law, daughter son in law, um, who are big, big people in their own right, and there's no grave for them. There's no place to visit. There's no Isle. There's no anything. In fact, um, I had a story on my trip. Um, there was a a group. You have this often with interesting with American groups who are more like a Hamish, more yeshivish, or Hamish, or more religious. You don't have this with any Israeli groups, even Hasidim or yeshiva boys. And and it's it's unique to uh, American groups that they sometimes have that they they say they tell me at the outset, let's tone down on the. Holocaust stuff, and let's focus on the uh, on the Kivrei Tzadikim. That's going to be the focus of the trip. Okay, you know, I accommodate the customer, whatever they want. And and uh, one one of, it was one of those trips. And um, the there's a guy in the trip who was a Baba Verchasid who uh, complained that we spent too much time in Auschwitz. Later that day, we were in Sanz. And we're literally standing in front of the Isle of the Divrei Chaim, where this plaque that I just mentioned is standing. And he says, this is the place where I want to be. This is the place where I could daven. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's a special place. And, you know, Auschwitz you could visit, but it's, uh, you know, this is, this is the main reason I came to Poland. I said to him, check, take a look inside at the plaque where uh, Reb Shulam Eliezer, his son, I said, you're a Baba Verchassid, so your Rebbe is a grandson of Reb Shulam Eliezer. So you come from this, this big tzaddik, Reb Shulam Eliezer, and you can't go to his isle. The most you could do is go to the place where he was killed, Al-Kiddush Hashem. So if the million other Jews who were killed in Auschwitz isn't enough of a reason to visit, so at least for your own uh, ancestry, your own Rebbe, the, uh, the, what Baba comes from, Reb Shulam Eliezer, that's uh, that's uh, that's that that should be enough of a reason. So he he of course saw my point, and that's um, that's exactly is the point that there's so many of these big tzaddikim who don't have a burial place, who don't have an oihel, who don't have a big achnasas archim uh, serving hot coffee and cake when you come and visit because they were killed in in places like Auschwitz. Um, so let's talk about who he was and his life, and there's several. Great sources. There's an excellent biography on him, actually. It's called Rabbeinu HaKadosh of Ratzfurt in Hebrew. A fellow by the name of Tzvi Brinner wrote it, over 400 pages. It's pretty well done, actually. And uh, in general, um, he, he, he was born to his father's uh, third wife in his father's old age. The Rechaim was already gaining, coming on in years. And his mother uh, passed away when he was four years old during a cholera epidemic, actually, that was sweeping through Tzans. And his father passed away when he was 14. So at the age of 14, he had no parents. Um, he was one of the youngest of the of the, of the Chaim's 15 children. His younger brother, Reb Shiloh Chekhover, was the youngest. He was also killed by the Nazis. There was a couple of few daughters as well from this uh, later marriage. When his mother, like I said, passed away when he was four, so the Chaim was Chaim was, was broken, and he delivered a heart-rending hesped, and later that day he calls in his two boys from that marriage, who were aged two and four. And, uh, there was also four girls I mentioned, but he calls in the two boys, because 
He's giving them a lesson in how to say Kaddish. And he sits them down and he explains to them what the words of Kaddish mean. And he got so emotional and animated that it was almost like, uh, this is what Rabbi Shalom Eliezer would later describe by the Seder table. It was that he was explaining, like like he was explaining the Manishtana. And every davening during that year, the, the Rechaim would have these two sons next to him. And when it came up to the time to recite the Kaddish, he turned the page in the Siddur and guide them, his two boys, in saying Kaddish for their mothers, for their mother. Um, he was so he was raised by Divrichaim married a fourth time, and he was raised by the Divrichaim's uh, fourth wife. And when he he was born on on Cholamayid Pesach, so his bar mitzvah arrived. It was on Cholamayid. So as per the son's custom of young single boys wearing tefillin on Cholamayid, so the first time he wore tefillin at his bar mitzvah was on Cholamayid. It's just a, a good uh, tidbit there. Either way, he he his father, like I said, passed away when he was fourteen. So he marries following his father's passing, not long afterwards, when he was 15, he got married. And who did he marry? His niece. A real rubbish story here. His sister's daughter um, in, in, in Russia. There is, his uh, son-in-law is Ramatla of Hernestipel from the Tversky, uh, from the Tversky Chernobyl dynasty. So this is his brother-in-law, and it's also his father-in-law. Um, and he was a, Ramatla of Hernestipel was a renowned Talmud Chacham. He wrote, uh, he authored uh, uh, books on halacha, also not not just as a Hasidic tzaddik, he was known as a tremendous uh, Torah scholar as well. So he stays by his father-in-law in Russia for 10 years. Eventually he's expelled by the Russian authorities. He was an Austrian citizen, so he couldn't stay on in Russia. So then he had to come back to Galicia for a short time. He's by his older brother, Rebchatskel and Shinov. Later on he moves to Tarnov. And that's when he first starts to attract the following. Tarnov is is a town, a fairly large town, a smack in the middle of Galicia. It's in between Lezhensk and Krakow. And it's, it's, it's not a city, but it's quite large. And it is in the heart of Tsan's country. And he, Rabbi Shulam Lezer, was one of the rare members of the Tsan's family dynasty who did not want to take a rabbinical position, also his younger brother, Rabbi Shaila Shechever. And in his modesty and his simplicity, he sat in the Tsan's clays in Tarnov and he tried to keep to himself and he's there for over a decade, and people, you know, slowly are attracted to him, and he gains a bit of a following. And it's at that time that he decides to move to Hungary to take the leadership of the Tzans Hasidim uh, residing then in Hungary. Um, so he moves in the late 1890s to Hungary, a couple of towns, until finally in 1900 he settles in the town of Ratzfurt. The names of the, there's different names of the town. The German name was Ratzfurt. The Hungarian name was Uferto, and very often the Jews would give, would go with the German name. It's an interesting thing over the local language. They did that in many towns. I know of examples. It's it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, maybe because German is related to Yiddish. I'm not sure why actually, um, but it happened in a lot of places. It was a tiny little shtetl, maybe a couple of hundred Jewish families. It was really small, even as far as shtetls go. So you're talking about a, a really small place. And later on, it would come to be nicknamed the Tsans of Hungary because of him. And he becomes a, a Rebbe and leader of, of uh, Hungarian uh, Hasidus for over 40 years. He had an influence in Galicia as well. He didn't, uh, he didn't totally abandon that. Um, very interesting tidbit, though. So whenever a, whenever a modern-looking Jew would arrive in Sanz, 
his father, the Devei Chaim, had told him as a young boy that he should be makar of them. He should go take care of them, bring them close. Uh, because why? Because if they're modern looking, that means they're Hungarian Jews, because Jews in Galicia didn't look like that. And he says to his young son, one day you'll be a leader and a Rebbe in Hungary and become a Hasidic leader in Hungary. So you have to know how to deal with Galicia Jews. And but because compared to, I'm sorry, Hungarian Jews. Because compared to Galicia Jews, Hungarians looked well off and more modern, clean shaven, they dressed more modern than, uh, than the Galicianer uh, uh, Jews at that time. So um, he even made an effort when he arrived in Hungary. Eventually, he made an effort to receive Hungarian citizenship, which probably did him well later on because it probably had delayed his, his death by a few years because the Polish citizens in Hungary were expelled in 1941 and he um, had Hungarian citizenship. So it was only much later on in the war, which we'll get to. So now, what would be a Hasidic story in Hungary without getting Reb Shaila of Karastir involved? It can't happen. We have to have Reb Shaila involved at some point. So let's let's get right into it. So when when Reb Shulam Lazer first arrives, he was famous in in Galicia. It was Reb Shulam Lazer Halberstam. He was the son of the Divrei Chaim. But it took him a, a, a bit of time to establish himself in Hungary. So in his initial stage of living in Hungary, Reb Shaila. Karastir took care of him, and he'd actually send him on a weekly basis wine and challah and meat and fish every for every Shabbos. He literally took care of him by, by feeding him until he gained enough of a following uh, on his own. Now, during those early years, he had a good relationship with the local rabbi in Ratzfurt because, again, Rav Shulam Lezer, unlike most uh, descendants of the Derechaim, he did not want to take a rabbinical position. So he was exclusively a, a, a Hasidic leader. And he'd daven in the early days also in Ratzfurt, he would daven in the local shul. He didn't daven in his own shtibel. Later on, he built his own shtibel. Um, he lived, he himself lived very simply in a small, run-down house. He refused to live lavishly. He refused to live in nicer accommodations. He even refused to fix a leak in his roof. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm a simple Jew like anyone else. I don't deserve any better treatment. And his followers would try to beg him for the privilege of paying for some home renovations, and he, he simply refused. Um, eventually, the amount of visitors grew, and he also started to receive a large quantity of mail. And again, he, would, he, would, he was a unique kind of a Rebbe. He was someone who was quite different uh, and, and quite special. It's one of, he's one of my favorites. I like to talk about him on, on a lot of the trips that we do. And, uh, and uh, so, some really interesting uh, practices. He would try to personally answer every letter that he received. His own handwritten response. Short, but again, a personal attention to each uh, each letter in the mail. Um, uh, and he um, he was like a real Galicianer, Tzan's uh, 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 custom. He would daven mincha very, very late. Very late. It was almost total dark nightfall by the time he would daven mincha every day. So when they asked him why, he would say again, and he was very modest, he was very simple, he would say, how are people going to know I'm a Rebbe if I don't daven late? At least if I daven late, that's one thing I do like a Rebbe, so people will know that I'm a Rebbe. Now, one of the founders of Hungarian Hasidus, a hundred years before that, a century before, was Rabbi Eisel Kaliver, the first Kaliver Rebbe, he was a student of the Chais of Lublin. So the Shabbos prior to the yard site of the Kalver Rebbe, the Revised Kalver, many would come to Ratzfurt, which is nearby, and then they would proceed together with Reb Shulam Lezer to Kalver for the yard site. So he was the focal Hasidic leader at that time in Hungary. In fact, when the Belzer Rebbe, Rabbi Sacher Daiv, 
during World War I had left Bells. He spent time in Munkach, which did not work out very well. But what's less known is that he spent some time in Ratzfurt, which did work out very well. He actually got along great with the Shalom Laser, and they got along beautifully. There was an they, they each tried, during the Hanukkah season, they would each try to go visit each other to pay their respects by participating in the candle lighting of the, of the, they had this res, mutual respect, uh, for each other and they would have tried to out, out visit, uh, each other at that time. Many years later, in fact, when the next Belzer Rebbe, Rebbe Aaron, this time during World War I, of course, was the Rebbe Rebbe Sachar much later on when it was the, his son, Rebbe Aaron Rokeach of, uh, of Belz, when he was he was able to escape Poland later in the war, and he arrived in Budapest. So Rav Shulam Lezerl made the trip from Ratzfurt to come visit and pay his respects to the Belzer Rebbe, in, the much younger Belzer Rebbe in, uh, in Budapest. In general, he was one of the rare Rebbes who was beloved by, by everyone, by all the other Rebbes of his time. Um, he attended the Sheva Brachis of the daughter of the Minchas Elazar. Um, uh, 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 the famous wedding of the video, and you know, it's in, in our intro audio intro about the Menchus Elazar yelling about Shabbos. So, that wedding, which was, uh, you know, I had discussed in the episode about uh, the Menchus Elazar's son in law from that wedding, Rabarachal Rabinovich. Um, so the, the so so during the week of Shabbat, Brachas Rab Shalom Lazar attended, and uh, and the uh, Menchus Elazar held Rab Shalom Lazar in, in very high esteem. In, in fact, uh, when Rav Shulam Lezer visited Grosvardian, which was the headquarters of the Vizhnitz Hasidus, so the Ahavas Yisrael of Vizhnitz, the Vizhnitz Rebbe, the pre-war Vizhnitz Rebbe, insisted on preempting. Rav Shulam Lezer was a visitor to town. He wanted to pay his respects to the local Rebbe, but the Vizhnitz Rebbe didn't beat him to it. He, he insisted on preempting his visit by going to visit him, even though he was the guest in town. Um, when uh, Reb Shalom Lazer had a son, Reb Chaim, named after his father, who was a Dayan in Satmar. He was a, a, a rabbinical leader, a, ju- a rabbinical judge in, in Satmar. So whenever he would come to visit his son, the Satmarav, Reb Yelish, would come to, Reb Yelish Teitelbaum would come to his tish, would come to Reb Shalom Lazer. Again, to, he was like the last of a generation. He was looked at with this awe and this respect by everyone as this, Son of the Divrei Chaim, someone who belonged to a different generation. Divrei Chaim had him in his old age, and he lived a long life, even though he was killed by the Nazis, but he was killed at the age of 82. So he lived a long life, and he was looked at in his later years as someone who, you know, he was, he was the son of the Divrei Chaim. When they would call him up to the Torah, people would want to listen and hear how they say, the son of Reb Chaim, the, 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 the great uh, legendary Divrei Chaim of Tzan. So... Uh, you know, when Hasidim uh, would relate stories about about his father, the Devar Chaim, he would be a bit cynical about it. Uh, he, he said, oh, not all the stories are true. Maybe they could have been true, but they're not. There are plenty of false ones out there. And he was very particular about relating stories that he had verified to be true or that he had himself personally witnessed uh, by his father or heard from one of his brothers, older brothers. Like his father, though, he also took an active leadership position. Um, he was an activist in many communal issues and the communal rabbinate and strengthening traditional Jewish life in Hungary and so on. Of course, like the rest of the Tzans dynasty, that we have letters from Reb Shulam Lezerl against uh, participation in the Agudis Yisrael. That's, uh, that was also part of Tzans and Babov. That was the, that was their position in Galicia and Hungary. Um, so, he, what he, and it, it, it's interesting is that he was 
most known for was that he was a, a Baal Moifis, a miracle worker. But he was also, and that's what I want to discuss more, I'm, I'm not particularly a fan of miracle stories, um, he was a father to thousands of followers. And what made him so beloved was that here he was, he was you know, in aristocracy, he was the son of the Devrei Chaim, he was a famous rabbi, he had a huge shtibel, with, and, and, and he never made anything of himself. He was always with the people, he was available, always available. He had nothing fancy about him, no shtick. For example, on, on long summer Shabbos afternoons, there was groups of Hasidim who would sit around a table in, in, in the shtibel, relating stories of Hasidic lore and of tzaddikim, of generations gone by and words of Torah. And he would sit among them, listening, as if he was just another one of the, uh, as if he was, as if, as if he was almost as if he was one of the guys in, in, in quotes. Um, on Rosh Hashanah, he would even serve coffee to his Hasidim, personally. On Simchas Taira, he danced in the circle with everyone else. He didn't dance in the middle alone like most of the other Rebbes uh, of then and, and now. He once had a guest for Shabbos that was invited to deliver a speech in the local shul. So Rabbi Shalom Lazarul rushed through his Suda. He skipped singing Zmiris, which, you know, for a Hasidic Rebbe is a big thing, and to ensure that his guest wouldn't be late for his speech. And he also wanted to make sure that his guest wouldn't feel bad that he had to leave the meal early. So he rushed through the Suda. It was just like someone who was extremely down-to-earth and considerate of everyone, of the people around him. Interestingly enough, one of the things he was known for was that he kept uh, cows in his courtyard to have easily accessible and readily available chal of Yisrael. And, and, but now that he had them, so he owned these cows, so he'd, he, would, he was very particular about taking care of them. And he would go out to daven every day. Before he would go daven, he would ensure that the cows got fed. Uh, just, was, that was his first thing he did every morning, was to make sure the animals are fed. So he's uh, caring for the animals as well. Um, these great people are very often measured in the small things that they do. And again, like I said, what made him the most famous, was very well known for, was that he was a Balmoifis. He was a miracle worker. Many people came over to him and had their prayers answered. And this is actually, you know, his, his renown. Um, his grandson, the Baba Vareba, of Shleim Halberstam, would describe it as an unnatural. It was like unique to him. He said, you know, they talk about a lot of Rebbes who were miracle workers. He was unique. He was in his own league. And there's some pretty incredible stories that have a first-hand testimony. So they're, they're probably true. But I think, at least for me anyway, uh, this small sampling of who he was and how he acted and how he interacted with people is perhaps an even greater story than the miracles. And it really brings out what a personality and, and what a leader he really was. He would travel around hungry to visit his Hasidim. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He would spend a lot of the uh, Shabbosim of the year going around visiting the Hasidim. He would also, and this was became like a, a a major event of the year, was he would return to Tzans for the yard site of his father. It was right after Pesach. Two or three days after Pesach was the yard site of his father's annual trip to Tzans, and thousands would come for both the yard site and for him to see him. He was usually, he was very far away. So here when he was in Galicia, he was local, he was accessible. And he was the last, or one of the last, his brother was still alive also, he was one of the last children of the Divrei Chaim. Like, uh, it was something, a sight to see. And at this time, there was already grandchildren and great-grandchildren of, of the Derechaim who were rabbis, 
of communities and Hasidic leaders across Galicia. So he was a bit of a celebrity, the fact that he was from a previous generation. In fact, so many people would be there during that weekend in Sanz that it became known as a shidduch scene because there are so many people that would close the deals on their children's shidduchim at this weekend event. So perhaps if we want to, you know, if people are always looking for creative ways to solve the shidduch crisis, I think all we need is, uh, is to revive this custom around some sort of yard site and oil of a big tzaddik, and we'll use that event where thousands of people get together, like they did in Sanz in the pre-war days, to close all the deals on the local uh, shaduchim. So that's a, that may be a, an idea. Either way, so on, on these visits to Galicia, he'd stay for a few weeks, and he would stay for a Shabbos by his son-in-law, the Kedusha Tzion of, of, of Baba, Verben Tzion Halberstam, um, and, and other towns, he would stay for a few weeks. He would take the opportunity to be and visit the, uh, the fo- his followers there. In his later years, he expressed a desire to move to Eretz Yisrael, to the land of Israel. We have letters in which he tried to arrange a certificate and for his move. And it didn't work out, but it's fascinating because it would have it made him the first Rebbe of the Sons dynasty to even attempt such an endeavor. Um, so it's, again, a uniqueness uh, of his uh, different from the rest of the family. Um, and then we come to the Holocaust. He, he, early on in the war, he was broken when he heard the news what was going on in Poland. Remember, his family members are there, he has followers there in the Tzans area of Galicia. And he moved heaven and earth to get his brother and his his son-in-law, the Gdushasian, and their families and other family members out to be able to help them escape to no avail. Almost all of them were killed. Um, and it affected him him deeply. And it, it really broke him in a certain way. The tragedy of what was going on in Poland while well, he was in the, at that time, the relative safety of Hungary. And at the war's outset, he announced in his shul, an incredible announcement, he announced that from now on, no one should pray for their personal needs anymore. This is a time when the Jewish people as a collective are in trouble, and therefore all prayers must be focused on the needs of the Jewish people as a whole, and therefore no more personal prayers. An amazing, profound announcement, that, like really to shake up the consciousness of, of his followers and the Jewish people at that time, and he went on and repeated it several times in the, the coming years. He went off and during that time, again, this is the time from the outbreak of the war, and until much, much later in the war, when the Nazis come to Hungary, it's only in March 1944, so for most of the war, He's in this relative safety, but the whole time he's keeping track of what's going on in Poland. And he was over during that time, he would go to Daven, he would go to pray by Rabbi Eisel Kalliver's cover. And he, one time he said, each time he came, he, he was so broken, he, would, he, he wouldn't have these lengthy prayers anymore. He would come and he would say one or two things and, and, and start to cry. And one time people saw him arrive there, and he said, Do ret der zanzeruv zakint. Klal Yisrael darf Yeshua. This is the son of the Tzanzarev speaking. The Jewish people need a salvation. And it was such a heartbreaking simplicity. It was so broken at that time that, that he, he, he said to one of his Hasidim that this is the worst time to be a Rebbe. Because the job of a Rebbe is to help. And here we're in a situation that I'm unable to help. The last Rosh Hashanah of his life, it was an emotionally powerful to all those present. And he actually, again, this is before the Nazi invasion of Hungary. But um, he changed some of the words of the davening and the nusach of the davening to reflect the desperate situation that they're in. Really a, 
know, a, a, a public act. And this is, again, all in solidarity of what was happening in Poland. It had not reached Hungary at the time. They were under the fascist Hungarian government. It wasn't easy. It was definitely not a, not a great time to be in Hungary either. Um, they, many, many got sent to the labor brigades, uh, and, uh, and uh, there was all kinds of decrees and limitations of, of Jewish life in Hungary. He, during that time, uh, during his last sukkahs, um, he got one of the only astragim in the entire Hungary. Now, he usually followed the custom of his father that he made the blessing on the esrig prior to Halil, already in the middle of davening. That year, he changed his custom. And at the crack of dawn, he made his blessing on the esrig and then sent it out. He sent it out to as many people can use his esrig. Not only that, he even hired a non-Jew before Yantif to take the esrig to surrounding towns to the maximum amount of Jews can be able to utilize his esrig. Uh, and with the Nazi invasion in nine, the spring of 1944, in March, he and his family were deported to a ghetto in a nearby town, Nierdhaus, where he uh, he was sent after he had spent his last Pesach in Ratzfert, and he conducted his father's, last time he conducted his, his father's yard site, after Pesach was already in the ghetto um, for the last time. His beard was cut off there, his wife passed away in the ghetto, Later on, they would say that they were jealous of his wife because she got a real Jewish burial, whereas everyone else was sent to the gas chambers in Auschwitz. And shortly thereafter, he himself, during the massive deportations of Hungarian Jewry to Auschwitz um, in the early summer of 1944, he was 82 years old, and he is sent uh, immediately to the gas chambers upon arrival. And, and we even have testimonies about his last words there. There is different versions of it. Menashe Unger brings a version. It's unsubstantiated. It's an interaction that he had with an SS officer about how could he still believe in God at this moment before he was killed. Uh, that's, that's one version. The other, which seems to be a much more reliable version, uh, it's also in the bio that I mentioned of Rav Laser, but also it comes from a, a very, very good and, and powerful testimony. Um, Moshe Porat was a chassid who had received a blessing from Shalom Lezer when he was a young child growing up in Hungary. In 1985, he was in the Agudas Yisrael Shul in Haifa, and he met an incredible person named Rabshia Rosenblum. Rabshia Rosenblum was one of the rare survivors of the Zunder Commando in Birkenau, in, 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 the, in the Auschwitz death camp in Birkenau. Um, the Zunderkommando was the special task force who had the worst job in human history, that they had to you know, be the ones who the Nazis forced to, to work in the gas chamber, to bring, to bring the victims inside, and then to take out the bodies afterwards and put them into the crematorium ovens. Absolutely a horrible, which is another story, and perhaps it's sometime when, when, I don't know, when the... And then, like, when a, when a tragic uh, time to, to to speak a little bit more about that, maybe on Tishabov or something. It's, it's another story, but he was one of the rare ones who actually survived, and uh, almost none of them survived. And he was an eyewitness to the last moments uh, of the of Reb Sholem Lezer Albushtam, the Rebbe of Ratzfurt. I'm almost sure I heard this also from Reb Shu Eibshitz that he I think he told me that uh, he heard this from Reb Rosenblum as well. So this testimony is is pretty good. Um, because of the mass deportations during those weeks, everything was done in this panicked hurry. The SS rushed everything. During this mayhem, 
It's in the undressing room, right before the gas chamber. There's, they bring them down the steps and into this undressing room. They tell them this, they're going into showers. The SS announced they're going to showers and they should leave their clothing here. And to, and they would, you know, try to fool them that it's, that it's just showers and they should keep their shoes together and all kinds of things like that. And all, and there's members of the Zunder Commando there who their job is to get them to go from the dressing, undressing room into the gas chamber. And he meets this elderly man. This is what Shia Rosenblum describes. And the Rebbe looks at him and he says, where are you from? And he says, I'm from a town near Krakow. And the Rebbe says, my brother, Abshayla Chekhover, is from that area near Krakow. So all of a sudden he said, my brother is Abshayla Chekhover. So he realized who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the great Reb Shalom Lazar of Ratzafert. So he says, Rebbe, do you know what's happening? You have to say vidui very quickly. Or one version says to daven, daven for us, daven for, daven for yourself. There isn't much time. These are the last moments where you can say it. Just do it quickly. Say vidui. So he helps put him on some, some clothing and some tzitzis even. He helps him put, get on his tzitzis. And he then recites the vidui with great devotion. When he had finished, the Rebbe of Shalom Lazer grabs the Shri Lozumu with both hands and he says to him with great emotion and a certain otherworldliness to him, he says to him, you, my child, will merit to survive. You will stay alive. I beg of you to please remember. Tell the entire world what these cursed evil ones have done to us. Tell them. And then he leaves him. And the SS closed the doors, and that was Rav Shulam Lazar's command. And he said it's a command that accompanies him till today. That's the legacy of Rav Shulam Lazar. He had uh, descendants who survived. Um, in, in one of his sons-in-law, uh, Rav Shulam Lazar's sons-in-law, was Rav Chaim Svi Teitelbaum, the Atzichayim of Sigit, whose son, of course, was Rav Meisha Teitelbaum, the Bayrach Meisha, the Rebbe, the Satmar Rebbe. So the current Rebbe's are descendants of Rav Shalom Lezer. Babav is also descendants. The son-in-law of Rav Shalom Lezer was a Kedush HaSiyan, Rav Shalom Halberstam. So Rav Shalom Halberstam, the Babav Rebbe, was also a grandson. So you have you have two of, of the great dynasties of today are all direct descendants. As someone who's not so well-known, Rav Shalom Lezer, and yet a large portion of the Hasidic world is actually directly descended from him until today. There are several others as well. But it's interesting, his son, Rabbi Shulam Zusha, who was with him in Ratzfurt and killed with him, in, he was killed in Auschwitz, not together with him, in a different transport. Um, he had a son-in-law who survived, his son-in-law, Rabbi Yael Ber, and he took on the actual Ratzfurt uh, Hasidus. He became the Ratzfurt the Rebbe, and of all places, Sao Paulo, Brazil. And that's where it continued, um, after his passing also. So you have even the Ratzfurt Hasidic uh, uh, group itself continued down there in Brazil. So that's a little bit about Rav Shalom Lezer. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, sponsorships, lectures, tours. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.